your Bibles, we are continuing our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Matthew. We're in Matthew chapter 26 this morning. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and Philip will bring one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Matthew 26, we're going to look at the first 16 verses. As you're turning there, I had one more quick announcement to make. It's an important announcement, very, very important. John Stowe, his birthday is today. And so... (laughs) Who are all right? <laughs> We've known John and his family for, I'm thinking, at least 15 years. So John was like 10 when he started coming to the church. No, he's <laughs> Ben told me to embarrass you, and so I, I'm, I'm trying. I'm thinking of something. I just can't. 47 years old, is that, is that embarrassing? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's what we need. We need, Terry, you need to get one of his high school pictures. <laughs> Happy birthday, John. Awesome. So, um, well, Matthew chapter 26, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 16 this morning. Starting in verse 1, we read, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings that he said to his disciples, You know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. But when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him, having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil, And she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial." Surely I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, and what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. The one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him thirty pieces of silver. So from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. The title of my message this morning is A Legacy of Love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, to be in your word, and to know, Holy Spirit, that you want to speak to our hearts. You have a word for each one of us here personally, Lord, and as a church corporately. Father, we also pray if there's anyone here that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they're not born again this morning, would you, Lord, speak to their hearts, help them see their need for you, and they return to you today. Thank you for our time together, Lord. We thank you uh, for our veterans, Lord. Again, we pray your blessing upon them and their families. And Lord, for those that are currently serving in our military as well. So bless our time together. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I don't know about you, but it seems the older I get, the faster time seems to be going by. When I was a kid, it seemed like that clock just moved so slowly, especially when you're in school. And you know, school gets out at what, 2.15 and you're looking at the clock and from 10 after 2 until 2.15 it's like hours. I mean, you're sitting there and you're staring at that. I mean, I felt like I was in the fourth grade forever. Maybe I was. But, but here's the thing. 
Time goes by really, really quick. I mean, didn't we just celebrate Christmas? It feels that way, you know, now we're decorating again. I just took mine down. You know, I was talking to my son Matthew the other morning, stationed in Washington, D.C., in the Marine Corps, and he was saying, Dad, in 10 months, I'm going to be 21 years old. Thinking, oh, man. I said, I remember when I looked forward to being 21, and then I blinked and I was 26, and blinked again and I'm 61. I mean, it's just crazy. Matthew wasn't phased, you know, and when you're at that age, when you tell someone, hey, time goes by really, really quick, it doesn't phase them. They don't, they don't realize it. But there, of course, are telltale signs that you are getting old. Like when your back goes out more than you do, I mean, you're definitely getting old. You know you're getting old when you're told to slow down by your doctor and not the cops. You know you're getting old when the gray-haired little old lady you're helping across the street is your wife. I had to apologize first service because my wife was upstairs. She's not upstairs now. <laughs> you know that you're getting old when you dim the lights in your home for economic reasons and not romantic reasons. <laughs> and finally, you know you're getting old when you sink your teeth into a juicy steak and they stay there. <laughs> it's been said, uh, Corey Ten Boom actually said this, the measure of a life is not determined by its duration, but by its donation. I like that. Our goal is not merely to live a long life. That's a wonderful thing if God gives that to you, but it's about living a full life, a meaningful life, uh, and offering something as a result of your life. Again, it's not the duration, but the donation. And here in our text this morning, we're going to read of a woman who's given us a donation, a legacy to live by, that wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will be told as a memorial to her. Listen, if I've, as I've gotten older, and now if I have become a grandfather, I think about more passing things on. What is a legacy that I can pass on to my kids? That word legacy is a fascinating word because it not only speaks to the future, but it also speaks to something beyond us, something that outlasts us. These are important things that we need to be thinking about. What kind of legacy will I leave for my children and my children's children? In fact, we actually see in Scripture that this mindset has always been God's plan for passing on His truth from generation to generation. Proverbs 13.22 says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children, but the wealth of a sinner is stored up for the righteous. Psalm 71.18 says, Now also when I am old and gray-headed, O God, do not forsake me until I declare your strength to this generation, your power to everyone who is to come. Psalm 102.18, This will be written for the generation to come that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. And then in Psalm 145 Verse 3 and 4, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, A righteous man is one who lives for the next generation. But you see, more than passing on beliefs, we as, as parents and, and grandparents, we must clearly model what it really looks like to passionately follow Jesus Christ. You know, that, that, that we can stand in awe of God, understand the purpose, and, and possess a hope that goes beyond anything this world can have to offer that we can show our kids. And so before us in our text this morning is an example of that, really is an example of, of lasting legacies, some good and some not so good. 
If you're taking notes, we're going to see three examples, three points this morning. We're going to see, number one, a legacy of love. Number two, a legacy of worship. Number three, a legacy of waste. First, a legacy of love. Look at verse verses 1 and 2. Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, that he said to his disciples, You know that after two days is Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. The greatest legacy of love that we have is what Jesus Christ came to do for us. Here we read that Jesus, uh, it's a couple days before the Passover, and he's gathering his disciples together, and he's telling them of his impending death. The Passover was selected purposely by the Lord because it foreshadowed what he came to do. His blood would be shed upon that cross. He would be that Passover lamb, the, the final sacrifice. Or as John the Baptist described him as, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now this is the fourth time in Matthew's Gospel alone that Jesus predicted or prophesied of his coming death. The problem was the disciples really weren't uh, you know, looking for Christ to suffer and die. And so this really was going in one ear and out the other. They were actually looking for what we've been studying in the past couple of weeks in chapters 24 and chapter 25. They were looking for Jesus to come and establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven and for him to sit upon the throne of David and to overthrow the Roman bondage that the Jews were under. So obviously, the disciples weren't getting it when Jesus would say, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and the third day I'm going to rise again. Here Jesus points out, we're getting close. It's going to happen in a couple days. Why? Because Jesus has come to give his life as a ransom for many. And as a result, Jesus would leave a legacy of love for every generation ever since. John fifteen thirteen, Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, and to lay down one's life for his friends. Now there's another legacy that's being left behind here for us to look at, and it's really a legacy of hate and destruction. Look down at verses three and four three through five. Then the chief priest, the scribes and the elders of the people, assembled at the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Well, here we have chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people. They're all gathered together, and they're ready. They're plotting by trickery to kill Jesus. Now, history tells us that this Jewish man, this high priest named Caiaphas, had come to power because his father, Annas, the former high priest, had stepped down to kind of avoid an appearance of a conflict of interest. See, Caiaphas served as high priest from A.D. 15 to A.D. 37, which is a really long time to serve as a high priest because to remain in that position, you had to have a very cozy relationship with Rome. Basically, you were their puppet. You were under their control. And to put this into perspective, the man that took over Caiaphas's place only lasted 50 days in office. So Caiaphas, he was a man who knew how to play the game. He was used to whatever strategies necessary to remain in political power, much like many of our politicians today do whatever they need to do to stay in their position that they've, they've gotten. And Caiaphas, as wicked as he was, he was also called the high priest. That meant he was the top dog of the priests. I mean, he was the man that would go in once a year into the Holy of Holies by himself to represent man to God and then in turn God to man. Yet here was this man, this individual in this incredible position who wanted to destroy the Son of God. Now, why would he want to do that? 
Well, get this. Caiaphas oversaw all the functions of the temple, including the merchandising that was done in the temple or around the temple. And of course, you know, when someone would come to offer their sacrifice, Caiaphas had this huge racket going on. These tables set up, spread out, with these special approved sacrifices. So the priest would check over the sacrifices that the people were bringing in, and they would look at it and go, yeah, not so much. A little bit of blemish there, even though there wasn't a blemish there. A little bit of blemish there, uh, but man, we got a deal for you. One time, one time only, for the right price, here you go. It was a racket. They were exploiting the people of God, taking advantage of the people of God. And Jesus comes in, and what does he do? He turns over the tables. He drives them out, not just once, but twice. Even one point, carrying a whip and driving the people out of there. Now, I'm sure that didn't make Caiaphas very happy. But it exposed him for who he was, a, a crook, a fraud. Now, Caiaphas is seeking revenge on Jesus. Notice in verse 5 that it says they did not want to kill Jesus during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Jesus was popular. There were a lot of people coming in at Passover. Millions of people were crowded in Jerusalem from all around. This is a great event for the Jews. Last thing Caiaphas wanted was to openly put Jesus to death. So they, as we read it, they do it by trickery, through lies and deception. And they did. But again, it didn't matter what Caiaphas wanted to do or didn't want to do. He wasn't in control. Jesus was in control. This was the pre-appointed time that Jesus would give his life. It's ironic that, you know, every time they wanted to kill Jesus, they couldn't. Now, when Jesus says it's time, then it's going to happen. It'll be in two days. I like the way Jesus, put, Jesus puts it in John ten eighteen. No one takes my, takes my life from me, but I lay it down for myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Again, just a legacy of love. Now, this brings us to our second point, a legacy of worship. Here is one woman who stands out in Scripture who has this incredible insight into the purpose and the ministry of Jesus, a legacy that would last forever on this earth, a legacy of worship. Look at verse 6. And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. Now this is a beautiful thing happening here. Now in our culture, it would be awkward. I mean, if you're at a restaurant and someone pours something on your head, it's probably because they spilt it. This is something different. And we get a little more information about what's going on from the other gospel writers because it actually, if you combine Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, all record this event. There's this meal and, and it's being held at Simon the leper's house. We have this dinner going on in Jesus' Jesus's honor. At least 17 people were there at the meal, probably more, but at least 17. There was Jesus. Then you had the 12 disciples. There was Lazarus, who Jesus had just raised from the dead. Lazarus's two sisters, Mary and Martha, and then uh, the finally uh, Simon, who's called Simon the leper. But in actuality, he should be called Simon the ex-leper because Jesus healed him and took away his leprosy. Maybe it's because that's what he was called for years. Eh, we're over Simon the leper's house, you know. But in any case, the gang's all there. Simon, Lazarus, the twelve, Martha, Mary, and of course, the guests of honor, Jesus. It's Mary that we know from the other accounts, is the one that has this alabaster flask of this very costly, fragrant oil pouring it on Jesus. Now, this is not the first time that we read of Mary showing her devotion and worship to the Lord. There's another meal in which Jesus came to, and if you recall, Martha, Mary's sister, was busy 
slaving away in the kitchen, wanting the meal to be just right for Jesus. And, and of course you would. I mean, you know, imagine if some great dignitary came to your house. You know, maybe it's all of a sudden you hear a bunch of cars pull up and, you know, presidential motorcade is pulling up and, and uh, I don't know how you react to that. Maybe how, what you think of the president or not, but, but maybe some other dignity. And out steps this great man or this woman of great importance and, and they say, hey, we're just driving through in the neighborhood and we chose your house to, to have a meal at. I mean, you want to fix the best meal possible. I mean, I can't believe that they're here. Maybe Franklin Graham comes to your house. I, I don't know. Maybe you got some good friends coming over. You want to fix the best meal. Well, here's the creator of the universe, Jesus himself, that married Martha's door. And Martha wants to make something special for him. And Mary, on the other hand, recognizes this golden opportunity. And instead of helping her sister in the kitchen she uh, to prepare a meal, she sits at the feet of Jesus just to drink in every word that he may say. Well, you know the story. Martha grew more and more irate until it finally got the best of her. She comes out of the kitchen and says, Lord, you need to tell my sister. She needs to get in this kitchen and help me. To which Jesus says, Martha, Martha, so busy. Comfort about with so much serving. Your sister has chosen the better part. Moral of the story is there's a time to work and there's a time to worship. There's a time to be active for the Lord, but there's a time to just sit at the feet of the Lord. Now, I do believe the more you worship, the more you want to do for Him and serve Him, but it begins with that heart of worship. Now, the other end of that, I think Martha's got a bad rap over the years because we are called to be servants, and Martha was a great example of what it means to be a servant. But our work should never take the place of our worship. Because if you're really in fellowship and communion with God, then you're going to want to do those things that please Him. And Mary sees that this moment. She's sitting at Jesus' feet. And here they are again together. And Mary comes out with this complete abandonment and love and worship and takes this expensive ointment and anoints Jesus with it. It's actually called spikenard is the name of it. It was something that grew in northern India that had to be imported into Jerusalem. I found a picture of the plant itself. It had a fibrous root anywhere between 3 to 12 inches long. It would shoot out between 30 and 40 spikes per plant. At the tip of these spikes were these little pouches of this fragrance, kind of an earthly fragrance smell that they would use for ritual baths and for burials. But very, very expensive at the time. Scholars suggest that this value was somewhere around $30,000. So Mary's taken a a, a year's salary, $30,000, and pouring it on the head of Jesus. And though the disciples, as we will read, will have a problem with this, it didn't matter to her what her opinion, what their opinion was. All she knew was, this is my Lord, and I'm going to bless him with this. Now, did Mary fully comprehend what was ahead? Did she realize what Jesus, that Jesus would die on the cross? I'm not sure. But she seemed to know more than the rest of them. She seemed to recognize that he needed to be anointed for his burial. And he, she rather gave him her all. Unlike these scribes and these Pharisees, these religious rulers, they only gave what was required of them by God. Well, you know, we're required to do this. And you know, I think sadly many older believers can get into that same rut. We get set in our ways and we kind of go in our own little flow. We don't want to go too overboard. We don't want to be too fanatical. We don't want to be too extreme. We'll just do what is required. I'll go to church on Sunday. I'll I'll maybe share my faith if someone asks me what must I do to be saved. But then, as you notice today, someone like Kanye West comes along on the scene. Transformation takes place and he says he's now born again. And he's not just sitting back and keeping quiet about it, is he? 
He's making this huge ruckus. He's sharing the gospel like crazy. And, and I don't know if you saw it or, or not, but if you can see it on this picture that I found. But this is his album cover. It says, Jesus is King. And it lit up the New York City skyline on the side of the New York City Police Department building is what it says in that picture there. I'm blown away by that. I mean, I pray that he's going to continue to grow and be used by God and get a good foundation in the Word of God. But I think he's putting many believers to shame about how he's sharing his faith. And people are coming to faith in Christ as a result of it. And we need to pray that that seed that's planted in his life and his heart gets on good, healthy soil. And, it, and it's nourished and God continues to bless him for standing up for what is right. And that he grows in the grace and the knowledge of God's word. But he's doing as much as he can with the audience, with the platform that he has. How about us as Christians? Uh, maybe we've been Christian for quite some time. Are we taking those same steps of faith to speak about Jesus with the audience, with the platform, with the people that we have? You see, as a result of Mary's relationship with Jesus, she gave her very, very best. And it started with worship. Now please understand this about worship fellow worshipers, as Mary broke the alabaster box and poured this ointment upon Jesus, John's Gospel says that the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. See, that's what happens when you spend time in worshiping of our Lord. It affects the people that are around us. Your attitude in your home changes. You can be stressed out and, and tensed up over life's struggles. A house is a disaster. And man, the minute you put on some praise music in the house, it's like, oh. The atmosphere changes. Listen, ask Alexa to put on some praise and worship music. See if, if that doesn't fill your home with, with, with a fragrance of praise. Or tell Google to, to play Chris Tomlin, Is He Worthy? Man, let me tell you, that song is amazing. Man, if you don't burst out in praise, I, I, there's something wrong with you. I mean, it, it is amazing. Or if you're into it, you know, Kanye West music. <laughs> Turn it on and listen to the song, Jesus is Lord. Amazing song. You'll start worshiping immediately. The point is, take Mary's mindset. You'll be amazed how uh, worshiping the Lord will affect the aroma of your house. Now, I shared this a few years back in our study of the Gospel of John, but I think it's worth repeating. As Mary broke this alabaster box and poured the ointment upon Jesus, she showed us three things concerning worship. First, worship often comes through breaking. Worship often comes through breaking. I mean, when do you really become a worshiper? When you're broken. Psalm 51, 17 tells us just that. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Maybe you're at your wit's end and things aren't turning and you're just, just turning out the way you think they should and you just humble yourself before the Lord and say, Lord, I, I don't know what's going on. And Lord, I just humble you. Lord, I just, just worship you. I know That's all I know is just to worship you. In that brokenness of heart, worship happens. But worship not only comes from brokenness, uh, but true worship is often costly. Again, as I mentioned already, it cost Mary about a year's salary. What does worship cost you and me? Well, I've I got to go to bed a little bit early tonight so I can get up early to make it to church for worship. And it may be hard, you know, when it, the weather's horrible outside, but, but it's worth it. Yeah, we may think it's hard for us in those times, but, but consider some other countries. If you get caught worshiping the Lord, it can cost you your life. To do what we are doing presently right now, worshiping the Lord in this church in China, we would have to be underground in order to do this. 
I'm so thankful for the freedom we still have that God has given to us the freedom to worship Him without fear and we should never take that for granted. And let me say this, I'm so thankful for the men and the women, our veterans again, that have fought for our freedom and to maintain this freedom that we have. We are a blessed nation with men and women of honor and commitment and loyalty that have fought for a right to worship freely as we do today. Because when it comes to worship, there will always be a cost and sadly there will be those in Judas's corner who will say, well, quit trying to be so holy. Do something more practical with your day. But if you're truly in love with the Lord, then it doesn't matter what it costs, what people say, you'll find ways to worship Him. And if you can't make it to church because of bad weather, you'll worship Him at home. You'll listen to podcasts. You'll, you'll go to Bible studies online. You'll do what you can because you just love the Lord so much. So although worship comes through brokenness, and although worship is sometimes costly, the third thing that worship is, is that worship is beneficial for all of us. Now keep this in mind, what's going on here. This happened long before the time of woman's freedom. I mean, this was a time when the woman's place was in the kitchen. And I'm sure Judas thought that hey, Mary should be in the kitchen with her sister Mary, making a meal for us men. But I love Mary's devotion. It didn't, didn't matter to her. She just broke from the norm in order to worship the Lord with all she had. Took out that alabaster jar of expensive perfume, broke it open. She then poured till every last drop was gone. And although respectable women didn't unbind or let loose their hair in public, Mary used her own hair, let it down to wipe off Jesus' feet. And as a result, her hair took on the same fragrance as Jesus' feet. I mean, that's what worship does. When you're worshiping the Lord, you take on the fragrance of the Lord. Let me tell you the secret of Mary. It was her making it a, it was her making a priority of spending time at Jesus' feet. Bottom line. I read a story about a man named Thor's Walden who created a life-size granite carving of Jesus and he sculpted the body of Christ in such a way that you, you can't see his face from a standing position. And a sign next to the statue says, if you want to see the face of Jesus, you must sit at his feet. And sure enough, as you get down and sit at his feet and you look up, then you can see his face. There's some great spiritual truth there. If you want to see the face of Jesus, you need to sit at his feet. Mary took the time to have fellowship, communion with God. Uh, he gave her this great insight to do what he wanted her to do. I think maybe that's one of the reasons we don't see the work of God today on quite the same level as we saw back in the early church. No one's spending time at the feet of Jesus. With Mary, there was this complete abandonment. The same was true with these first century disciples. Complete abandonment. And as a result, God would say, go, and they would go. God would say, do, and they would do. God would tell Philip to go out into the desert, and he would get up and go. God would tell Peter to take a crippled man by his hand and pull him up, and he would do it. They were, they were willing to take risks. They were willing to do what they could do. That's what another gospel says of Mary's great sacrifice. She did what she could. Are we willing to do at least what we can do? I mean, it may not be a lot, but you can do what you can. I think of our message a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at the story about the men given the talents. We pointed out that each was given certain talents and gifts in our lives, so we must take what God has given to us and use it for His glory. We must not look over what someone else has that doesn't have because God didn't give that to someone else. What God gave to us, we must use for His glory. Faithful to, to do what God set before us. And if we are faithful to do that, God will give us more. Mary did what she could. It may not seem a lot to us, but it wasn't the ointment. It wasn't the gift. It was the heart behind it. The motive of love and worship touched the heart of Jesus. William Barclay says in his commentary on this passage, Love does not neatly calculate the less or the more. 
It is not concerned to see how little it can decently give. If it gave all it had, if indeed it gave all the world, the gift would still be too little. There's a certain recklessness in love which refuses to count the cost. You parents know what I mean. You love your child, and if there's anything he needs, anything at all, you'll make whatever sacrifice is necessary to get it for him. Love is not love if it neatly calculates the cost. Point is, there are wealthy people could may write a check for $30,000 and not even miss it. There are others that it would be their life's savings. It would be everything they have. For Mary, this was huge. She gave her most prized possession. Scholars say that this was her, her, her dowry. And she gave it to the Lord. And Jesus recognizes that. And that's why Jesus says in verse 10, She has done a good work for me. And what's amazing to me about that is Mary didn't spend all the time with Jesus like the disciples did day in and day out. But she did what she could. And despite all of that, she gave the very best she could. Now we read that the other disciples, they were angry. And this brings us to our final point, a legacy of waste. Look at verses 8 to 11. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she she has done a good work for me, for you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. Now, John's Gospel tells us this. it was Judas Iscariot that spoke on behalf of the disciples. And he looked at this woman with joy and and, and worship and an attitude of praise and, and, and looks at her and says, What a waste. You're just wasting that. All that money could have been given to the poor. It's a waste, Judas said. Yet in a few hours, Jesus would call Judas himself the son of perdition, which actually means the son of waste. And that's because people who don't love God or understand this waste always sees worship as a waste. In John's Gospel, we read, It was Judas Iscariot who, later to betray, who was later to betray him, objected, saying, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages. And then he goes on, and the Bible concludes, he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. Yeah, he was the the treasurer of the group. He held the bag. And when he saw the ointment being broken and put on Jesus, he said, man, I I could have had all that money. Could have have saved that money. Man, it could have been mine. His motive was certainly wrong, but isn't it interesting? He just complains. He's just complaining about it. I've noticed over the years that the ones that complain the most are the ones that do the least. The ones that have the biggest gripe about this or that, I don't like this, or why don't we do this, and gripe, gripe, gripe. These are the people that do the least. And I have found that the people that do the most are the ones that complain the least. Instead of complaining, you know, griping, oh, you know, I, I see this need over there. I, I think I need to fix this. I, I, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to do what I can. So when I find the complainers, it's not surprising to find they usually do very little except gripe. Of course, Jesus had an answer for these complainers. Jesus rebukes the disciples. Jesus rebukes Judas. And notice again, he says in verse 10 and 11, Why do you trouble the woman? For she's done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me... You do not have always. Now don't miss uh, or understand this, this, this passage here. He's not endorsing poverty or saying, hey, you don't have to be sympathetic towards those, uh, you know, without, you know, you don't have to be sympathetic towards those who face, you know, human suffering. He's simply giving us a better prescription for divine stewardship. And that is in this life, there ought to be priorities. First things first. 
Jesus here is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 15 where God brings Israel into the land and, and he speaks to Moses in Deuteronomy 15 and 11. And he says this, For the poor will never cease from the land. Therefore I command you, saying, You shall open your hand wide to your brother, to your poor and your needy in your land. The point that Jesus is making here is that there's always going to be opportunities for you to show a good deed to those who are poor. And we should. However, now is the opportunity, now is the moment for this woman to do something for her Lord that she will never be able to do again. And Jesus says she's doing this for the right reason. It's a good work. It's for my burial. Look at verse 12. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. In other words, she's giving Jesus flowers before the funeral. You know, people sometimes never get around to giving that gift to that person or showing them that they love them until it's too late and then at the funeral, here's some flowers. Mary's given the flowers before the funeral. She's showing his love before he dies. All that to say, there's certain things in this life that you only have the opportunity right now to do them. You're never going to have the opportunity once this life is over. Never go to Krispy Kremes again once this life is over. Or Andy's. Seriously, once you die, once you're off this earth, you can't witness to anyone in heaven. They're all saved. I mean, what are you going to say to Peter, the apostles? They're already believers. You know, once you're in heaven, once you die, you'll never be able to write a check and give to the Lord's work and in furthering His work upon the earth. You, you can't do that when it's all over. Once you're in heaven, you, you, you can't help disciple someone in their walk with, with, with the Lord. I mean, they're in heaven. I mean, you're going to disciple the Apostle Paul? I, I mean, come on. No, now is the time now is the time for us to take those certain opportunities we can and use our resources to bring glory to the Lord. Because once these opportunities pass, that's it. It's over. That's why Jesus says in verses 12 and 13, for in pouring out this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. And then verse 13, as surely I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. I love that. Almost 2,000 years later, we're still talking about what this woman did. Her legacy lives on, a legacy of love, a legacy of, of, of worship. She took the most precious thing that she possessed, spent it all on the Lord. And Mary simply responded, just in response to, to, to the Lord's love to her. Oh, you love me so much, I just, I just have to give back. And her legacy lives on. Let me tell you this, if you truly love the Lord, if you experience the love of the Lord, as I said, it's going to be beneficial for your life. Because if you really love Jesus as you ought to, man, you're going to have love for one another like never before. If you really love Jesus like you ought to, if a man loves Jesus Christ as he should, he'll be able to love his wife with his whole being like he's never known. He'll be able to supernaturally do what, Christ, what the Bible says, that love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. If a man or woman loves the Lord with their whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, as Scripture commands, then in turn they'll be able to love their neighbors as themselves. In fact, they'll be able to love their enemies as well. See, again, Mary's just simply responding to Jesus' love with as much love as she could possibly give, and she was blessed, and her legacy lives on. And yet Judas' legacy of waste also lives on. Finally, look at verses 14 through 16. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out him thirty pieces of silver. So from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. Some biblical scholars suggest that, that Judas was so humiliated 
I'm so upset over this whole thing about the the oil and uh, the the fragrance and, and that that uh, that he was publicly you know rebuked by by Jesus that now that was the last straw that broke the camel's back. Judas was done. You know, he might have thought to himself, listen, uh, I say something in front of all these people about what a waste it is, and, and I get jumped on, and, and I get rebuked, and I'm done. That's it. You know, Jesus, you're not doing what I think you should do, and, and I'm going to go trade my relationship with, with you for what? For something that's temporary. I mean, you know, that's what Judas did. He forsook the Savior for silver. That just blows my mind. I mean, he, he walked with the Lord for, for how long? He witnesses miracles. He, he, he seen the display of truth continually exercised. And he comes to this place as he looks at Jesus' walk and he's tired of his heart being changed. And he says, forget it. I'm done. I don't need this anymore. I'm out of here. He takes a hike. He trades his relationship with God for something of temporary value. And what's amazing to me also is to know that it, that uh, the Bible teaches at this point the spirit of Satan had entered him. He's, he's responding to evil. And he finds himself looking at these 30 pieces of silver and go, man, this is great. I'll take that over this relationship with the Lord any day. What a legacy. What a waste. See, as we close, we read the story of, uh, of three people who left a legacy. Jesus, a legacy of love. Mary, a legacy of worship. Judas, a legacy of waste. Let me ask you, what kind of legacy are you leaving today? What are you doing with your time? Are you spending time at the feet of Jesus? Reading His Word, praying in fellowship with the Lord. Are you leaving a legacy of love to your children? Being that example to your children, to your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, your neighbors, friends, co-workers, what it means that to truly worship the Lord? You know, none of us can really control what that moment is that God, or when that moment is when God decides to take us home. We don't know. We don't determine the date of our birth either. But we can determine what goes between the dash, from the day we're born to the day that we die. Are you living your life well for Christ? If you're, if you're serving the Lord, are you seeking to win people to the Lord? Are you discipling someone? Are you helping maybe take them under your wing and help them get on their feet spiritually and help them to grow and help them to, to continue to serve the Lord? You know, a guy did this for me 40 years ago. His name was John. I accepted Christ after listening to Pastor Chuck Smith on the radio. I'm in my car, pulled over. I, I pray a prayer. And no one gave me a Bible afterwards like we give out to people that make commitments to the Lord here at the church. No one had some follow-up counselors to come and talk to me. No staff that did anything for me. But there was this one guy that I knew before I was saved, and he was saved now, and he, he came over and started opening up the Scriptures to me. And John and I would sit at our house, and, and man, time would go by. You know, it, it look, it's 9 o'clock, and the next thing is 2 o'clock in the morning. And we're going through the Scriptures, and I would ask him a question, and he would do his best to show me and, and answer them for me. And I'd never seen anything like this in my life. God's Word had answers to, to my questions and then He would show me. But not only that, He displayed what the Christian life was all about to me. See, He knew we were going to replace our driveway. It had a blacktop driveway and, and we had a driveway and then we had these ivy and plants all on one side. A good, I don't know, probably quite a bit, 500 square feet of a driveway. I mean, weeds and, and ivy and stuff. And I come home from work and it's all cleaned out, completely gone. It's smoothed out. It, it, it's ready to be poured. And I'm thinking, who did this? And it was John. He, he just, you know what? I, just, I love the Lord. I just wanted to do this for you. 
I've never seen anything like that. I was blown away. He modeled what it's like to truly love the Lord Jesus. What a changed life is really about. See, John came at a critical point in my life. Had he not come, I think that seed that was sown might have been choked out by the cares of this world. I wouldn't be here today. I could have been another statistic. But listen, John was just some regular guy. He's still just some regular guy, and they had a concern for me. And you too can be that regular guy or regular gal for someone else. You don't need to be a biblical scholar. They just need to know you're a real Christian. And you may not have every answer to their questions. I mean, who does? I sure don't. But if you need answers, you can come and get them help from any one of us elders here at the church or leaders. But the point is, you need to be a friend of them. And show them and model them. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what, what, what we do as followers of Christ. This is what we do as Christians after lunch. We go eat. That's what we do. <laughs> how we relate to one another. That's how we do these things. Give an example. Give them a model to follow. And you know what? You not only help them, but you help yourself. You revitalize and you rediscover some of the truth that you maybe learned a long time ago. See, John, in, in my life, left a legacy for me to follow. Are you leaving a legacy for someone else? Mary did what she could. That's all the, the Lord asks of us. Do what you can. And there is no waste if it's done from a pure heart for the glory of God. Now, there are people in our world today, and you know this is true, that they look at us and think we're nuts. We're wasting our time in church and following Christ. Why do you go to church? Why are you getting up so early when you can be sleeping? And why do you do all that religious stuff? It's a waste of time. And people do look at us as Christians and think we're wasting our time in many ways. Some, some young person may give up a promising career, you know, to, to go into some third world country as a missionary. And the world looks on and says, oh, you're, you're wasting your time. That's a waste. Maybe you give up certain pleasures or activities because of your commitment to Christ, because you don't want your spiritual life dull. And people say, man, that's a waste. Man, you missed a party last night, dude. They don't get it. Because God's word and fellowship with God's people is more important to you, but they think it's a waste of time. Maybe because of what the Bible says, you determine that your family is more important to you than anything else, and you don't spend hours after hours on the job away from your family because God's word says it's important for you to be with your family. You don't go to every social function you could go to because you want to be with your family. Yet people say, what a waste. What about that mom who stays at home with her child? Especially in the formative years of trying to be that super mom and have it all. If she makes that sacrifice, someone says, what do you do for a living? Well, I'm a stay-at-home mom. You what? You don't work, do you? <laughs> yeah, right. If I try taking care of a child, I'll give you two hours. <laughs> but the world says, what a waste. And you know what? We'll see what a waste is and what a waste isn't as the years go by. Because I think as you look back on your life and you think of the choices you made and you look at the choices other made, you will realize that you didn't make a mistake they did. You didn't waste your life, they wasted theirs. And at the end of the day, you're going to have a legacy. Not a legacy of waste, a legacy of love. Let me tell you this. Your influence will not only impact your children, but it's going to impact your children's children, your children's children's children, great-great-great-grandchildren. Because what you do with your children will be passed on to their children that can be passed on to. Now, the other side of the coin is sinful traits can be passed on as well. I want to close with this story. Consider the impact of the life of one godly man. His name was Jonathan Edwards. Great American preacher. He did the, he's famous for his sermon, uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. 
Not only did he preach to his congregations, but he preached to his family. And as a result of his direct descendants, 14 went on to become college presidents. 101 became college professors. 106 became ministers or missionaries. 108 became lawyers. And one became the vice president of the United States. Aaron Burr was the third vice president and Jonathan Edwards' grandson. At the same time, there was a man named Jacob Jukes, a man who mocked Jonathan Edwards, who mocked the revival that was taking place. And listen to what happened to his family. 400 of his direct descendants became physically incapacitated because of the inflictions due to fights, brawls, and the like. 310 became professional paupers. 60 became thieves. 7 were convicted of murder. Only 20 became tradesmen. And 10 of those 20 learned their trade while serving in the penitentiary. Both men left a legacy. Listen, we must do what we can, take what God has given to us, be faithful with it, and then remember that all that all of that will come from our fellowship with God, our relationship with Him. As we sit at His feet, as we worship Him, we'll find the desire and the energy and the fortitude to do what God has called each one of us to do. Now listen, it takes knowing Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, Man, you're in a heap of hurt. <laughs> God loves you. He died on the cross for your sin. You need to repent of your sin. Give your life to Jesus Christ. Be born again. And you'll see all that Jesus has done for you. Forgiving you of your sin. He'll give you His Holy Spirit to dwell inside of you. He promises to give you heaven, a hope of heaven, eternity with Him. A new life in Christ. New bodies that will never grow old. Never, never, you know, get worse. But come to Him, and God will forgive you of your sin. So if you're here this morning, and you've not made that commitment to Christ, as soon as service is over, the elders, leadership will be up front. And if that's your desire, I would love to pray with you and give you a Bible and let you know what it means to follow Jesus Christ. If you need prayer for any other reason as well, elders, leaders will be up here to pray for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. Lord, help us to be uh, worshipers. Lord, help us to leave a legacy of love and worship. Father, help us to to remember to spend time at your feet, Lord, before we try to go out and do anything. Lord, we recognize it's not by power, it's not by might, it's by your Spirit, says the Lord. It says your Word. Lord, we recognize that apart from you, we can do nothing. So, Lord, we ask for an filling of your Spirit. We ask, Lord, that you help us to spend that time in your Word and in prayer. And then use us, Lord to exemplify what it means to follow you. And finally, Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, that they would give their heart and life to you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's all stand and we'll have Sarah Beth lead us in one more song as we close.